Hi, everybody. This is episode 43 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for coming back. I can't wait for you to get into this session. There are a lot of surprises for you this week, especially as we begin to take a look at Samson. But ultimately, we start with taking a look at his parents and we ask the question, what does it mean to be a Nazarite? And the connection between Samson and Christ, it really is going to come as a big surprise to you. I'm guessing because it came as a huge surprise to me, and I can't wait for you to hear what an amazing conversation we had. Now, I also want to remind you to go to our website, thebiblelab.com, T-H-E, biblelab.com, and get your study guide. It will be the easiest way for you not to get lost in this conversation because we go through a lot of things, and I want to make sure that you see it there. But my greatest hope and my greatest prayer for you today is that you will truly come away from this experience, truly understanding and seeing the character of God more clearly. God bless you as you join us here for the Bible Lab. All right, you ready? Number one, here we go. I have remained faithful to all of my New Year's resolutions. I've remained faithful to what, 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 what in the world? I'm sorry, but it's only been seven weeks, my friends. Seven weeks, and I'm seeing probably 75% of you saying no. 75 say no, about 20% said yes, and the others who were too ashamed to say no raised up a maybe card. Oh, my word. Jay resolves not to make any New Year's resolutions. Which leads us to number two. Number two says, I made a resolution to stop making New Year's resolution years ago. Oh, look at this. Look at this. The entire, almost the entire uh, group looks like a sea of green. I'm seeing about 10% no. And maybe 2% maybe and everybody else. Yeah, you, you just decide. I'm done. I'm done with that. Now, my wife and I, two years ago, made a New Year's resolution that we have not broken to this day. We are starting our third year of the exact same one, and you will be so proud when you hear what it is. We, we have uh, uh, some friends, another couple, and they're, they're foodies, and um, we all lived in the Napa Valley at some time. You can't live in the Napa Valley and not become a food snob. I'm sorry, but I'm a food snob now. And so we made a resolution once we, uh, once we experienced this little place um, in Costa Mesa called Sidecar Donuts. Anybody heard of that place? Can I just spread the gospel of gingivitis to you today? <laughs> Sugar-coated happiness. It's as, if, it's as if Pinterest got together with some of the world's greatest chefs and said, let's make donuts. And it is like the finest ingredient. It, you, you can't think donut anymore. It's just amazing. They, they make their own purees and all. It's, it's insane. So we made a resolution because every month they have five flavors you can only get during that month. And we made a resolution that every month of the year we'd go and we would sample and test the five flavors of the month. And we have not broken that resolution <laughs> in over two years. So the moral of the story is, kids, if you want to keep a resolution, make it donuts. (laughs) So I expect to see some of you down there on Sundays when I go down once a month. Yeah, great. Now the line's longer. Number three, number three, the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament are simply for our best health and not meant to be a test of faithfulness. Mm, I heard a groan out there. It's probably because we're part of the blue zone. Um, I'm seeing about 75% yes. I'm seeing about 15% no and 10% maybe. This is a toughie because we've, we've probably given comments on every side of this issue depending on who we're talking to, right? That's right. We're going to talk about this in detail because as we go through this story, there are some dietary restrictions, and we have to ask the question, why? Why is this dietary restriction there? So we'll talk about that later. (coughs) Number four, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was 
only fully invested and available to a chosen few key leaders. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was only fully invested and available to a, to a few chosen key leaders. I'm seeing a, a majority of no. It's probably 80% no and probably 6% yes, and the rest are maybes. Do you want me to ask that one again? You want to change your vote yet? Raul, did you raise a maybe? No. What'd you raise? No. Uh, try the other one. It's interesting what happens in the Old Testament and a shift in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2. And it's mentioned in Joel chapter 2, verse 20. It says, in the last days, the Holy Spirit will come in a different way. It'll, it'll come upon all people, which means that, I guess in the other days, the earlier days, it didn't come to all people. And so we have characters like the judges. We have characters like Samson that it appears within Scripture to say that the Holy Spirit was not equally accessible to all people and God did not invest the same amount of His Spirit's power in all people. And we're going to take a look at that today because there seems to be a shift. It's good news for us because we're living under the new covenant, which says the Holy Spirit is available to all of us equally, which means not that there's a cap on the level of the Holy Spirit, but you have accessibility to an unlimited source of power through the Holy Spirit. But we're going to take a look at a time where it appears that the Holy Spirit was not equally available to all people in the same measure, and that God does choose some specific people to invest His Holy Spirit to be a Savior for the people at the time. So we'll take a look at that. But it's okay. Thank you for trying. Everyone gets a purple participation ribbon. <laughs> I don't mean to seem I don't mean to seem uh, condescending, which means to talk down to you. But um, <laughs> I'm just going to move on. Okay. Number five. Man, it was so great seeing you this week. I know I'll miss you next week. Um, number five, I must uphold my end of the bargain in order for God to uphold his. I must uphold, uphold my end of the bargain in order for God to uphold his. It's another toughie. Yeah, toughie, isn't it? Uh, uh, the, the, the no's came up and the, the yeses came up much slower. But it looks like a, a majority of no, probably 70% no. And it looks like about 10% yes and about 20% cowards. <laughs> that didn't raise anything. You didn't even raise a maybe card. Come on, guys. Th thank you for raising the maybe card, Pastor. Good. Taking a look at a, at a new story and a, a new judge, we're, we're really fortunate in this story to be able to have much more backstory. As you've been reading through the judges, you'll realize we've just skipped over several. Why? Because it doesn't say anything about them. It just says they were. And okay, but it doesn't say anything about the character of God. And so remember, we're not just reading the Bible to read the Bible. We're looking for windows that show the character of God. And the next window that really demonstrates the character of God is the story of Samson. And as we start out Judges chapter 13 today, we realize that it doesn't even talk about Samson at the beginning of the story. It talks about his parents. And in God introducing himself to the parents, it's a beautiful window to try to understand the character of God before Samson, the uh, very strong and yet uh, very flawed character, comes onto the scene. And so what we're going to be taking a look at today is how did God really demonstrate his character through letting the parents know your son is going to be the next judge, the next savior that will save the people from the, the current enemy, the current harasser, or the Philistines. And so to understand this, we have to understand vows and how you make vows and and. and how you make resolutions in your life. So I want to ask you, um, what is one of the longest revolutions, uh, excuse me, resolutions or vows that you've ever kept? I shared my donut story. So what's, what's the longest resolution or vow that you've ever been able to keep in your life? Sharon, you're going to start us out. Thank you. I was baptized when I was 10 years old, so that's 66, 60 years, 66 years. Mm -hmm. 
that I've been faithful to my baptismal vows. Awesome. Incredible. Very cool. 66. Same number as the books of the Bible. It's a very special. Back here. About 20 or 25 years ago, um, as a nurse, uh, sometimes families will help you, but it's very unusual for a middle-aged man to help you with their father. And this, this man was helping me quite a bit. And so you, after you get to know him a few days, you can start asking personal questions. He had a medallion around his head that obviously meant a great deal to him because even his skin was growing into the chain around his head. And so I asked him, is it all right if I find out why that means so much to you? And he said, sure, I'm a Satanist priest. And so after I caught my breath (laughs) and my equilibrium, I said, do you mind if I ask you some questions? And he said, no, I don't. And so I said, first of all, do you know I'm a Christian? And he goes, oh, yes, I can feel it. And I said, well, why would you be a Satanist? And he said, for the power. I said, what kind of power? He says, well, I can put a curse on you. I said, what would make you do that? He said, if you're in my space. So I backed up. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, not that kind of space. (laughs) So I said, all right, but, but what kind of power other than that? And he said, well... You know, he said, we, we believe that, you know, the earth will be ours mm-hmm. and forever. And I said, well, what about the Christians? The Christian thought, because you know that. And he said, oh, you Christians can go off with God because we're going to have the earth. So I actually learned a lot. Mm-hmm. But my resolution was a couple of things. Is you can learn from everybody. I probably learned more about Satan from him than in many other ways. And the other thing was to always remember God is protecting you because Satan might be right in your face. (laughs) Wow, powerful. All right, over here. Nancy and I took vows in Aurora, Illinois, in December 21st, 1972. That were marriage vows. That is awesome. Aurora, Illinois. (laughs) That is incredible. Rich. Richard. In about fourth grade here at Loma Linda Elementary School, they gave us little temperance cards to fill out and sign. And I've done my best to adhere to that through my life. The, probably the thing I'm proudest the most is in uh, the late 1990s, I had four surgeries on my left knee by Michael Dillingham, the 49er orthopedic surgeon. And he said that bar none, that I made the fastest recovery of any patient he'd ever had in his career. And he came to visit St. Lena Hospital because he wanted to learn about the healthier lifestyle of a vegetarian diet. (laughs) That's awesome. And Richard, you not only filled out that card, but your job is driving a truck, delivering health foods. That is your career. And so... uh, Perhaps it's all the preservatives in those big franks that's really helping, but I'm telling you, it works because I've eaten my share of big franks, and most people guess I'm, I look younger. I, I, they usually guess 48, and I'm actually 48 and a half. So, living proof, living proof. Nancy. I've kept a diary for about 30 years. I wish I had kept it longer. Yes. Yeah, wow, a diary. How many of you have started a diary? Oh, yeah, I have several of them with a first page filled in. <laughs> and the first page says, I am going to do this regularly and faithfully. And I, yeah, exactly. Resolutions, we, we make them, we, we have good intentions for them. Uh, why do we make them? Because we want to be better people, we want to have better results. We want to eat better donuts. Whatever it is that is your resolution, you want, you want to do something more. You want to enhance your life uh, more. And in many ways, spiritually speaking, we want to enhance our relationship. Because in many ways, we feel like um, there is a deficit within our relationship with God that if we could just consistently change our behavior, change our approach, that we'll get different results. And so in that same way, we resolve and we do certain things or we avoid other things to make sure that our life is, is in the right way. 
All the elements are there. All the framework is there to make sure that we don't get in our own way to have the advancements that we want. So imagine in our story, as we read through, about how God says, I need you to make some resolutions, and I need you to abstain from some things, and I need you to do some other things. It's, it's really puzzling to see what he asks us to do. And I want you to open up your Bibles or your Bible apps, or if you're biblically impaired, look up at the screen uh, in front of us. And we're going to go through the entire chapter 13 of the book of Judges, and then we're going to come back and we're going to walk through it together as a filter for what, we, what we're going to talk about here in a moment. Judges 13, starting with verse 1, it says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Surprise, surprise. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man, Zorah, uh, a certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless. But you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to become a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, You will become pregnant and have a son. Now then, drink no, no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord, I beg you to let this man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband, Manoah, was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, He's here. The man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, Are you the man who talked with, to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, When your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, Your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, We would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, Even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that we may honor you when your word comes true? He replied, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Then Manoah took a young goat together with the grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. The woman gave birth to a, to a boy and named him Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahanine, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtal. 
So, what's going on? Let's read this again for the first time. Several things that we read right past. First of all, angel of the Lord comes and, and announces that the boy is to be a Nazarite. What in the world is a Nazarite? Well, ultimately, there's a bunch of restrictions. First of all, you saw that they have to abstain from wine, wine vinegar, grapes, raisins, intoxicating liquors, vinegar made from such substances, and eating or drinking any substance that contains any trace of grapes. Basically, you have a grape allergy, and you have to abstain from all grapes. Okay? Anything that has any grapes in it, even raisins, can't have it. Sorry, kid, no box of raisins. You get goldfish, but no raisins. Most kids would not complain. Um, Secondly, refrain from cutting the hair on one's head, but allow the locks of the head's hair to grow. Um, it's interesting, uh, in, the, in the story coming up, uh, you'll read that Samson had seven locks of hair, which probably means he had seven dreadlocks, okay? Seven dreadlocks on his, on his head. Um, imagine a Rastafarian Samson, and you're pretty close. You also were not to become ritually impure by contact by contact with corpses or graves, even of those of family members. You could not be a pallbearer uh, for one of your family members. You could not touch dead corpses. Now, some of you are saying, but hang on a second. Does that mean he did not become a Nazarite because we have this whole riddle coming up? There's this lion carcass, and there's honey, and he gets the honey out. Did he get the honey out without touching the carcass? All this stuff. In their belief, it was human carcasses. You, you couldn't touch a human carcass. Animals, it was fine but you couldn't come into contact with a human that was dead. We have a couple of examples of Nazarites in the Old Testament. Samson's the first. Now, it's been mentioned all the way back to Numbers chapter 6. If you want to see where it all came from, you go all the way back to Numbers chapter 6 where it explains if you want to take a vow. Here's the interesting thing. Well, don't read it because it'll open your mind. Because it says, if any man or woman cares to be a Nazarite. So even women could be Nazarites. Now, what was it? You would take a vow of faithfulness, dedication to God. Being a Nazarite, if you were to translate it in its literal form, it just means you're dedicated or you have made a vow to. You, so this is being dedicated or making a vow to God. And most of the Nazarites were only for a temporary amount of time. Now, there was a time limit. You couldn't say, today I'll be a Nazarite and tomorrow I will not. Or this week I'll be a Nazarite just for this week. You had to give at least, the bare minimum was 30 days. So many people, at least 30 days, would commit, I'm going to be a Nazarite. And I will abstain from all products of grapes. I'll make sure I abstain from the unclean animals, which is, sounds kind of funny, which tells you that even though Leviticus 11 uh, was very familiar to the Jews, that at this time of the judges, that um, you would have to remind them to not eat unclean meat. It just shows they were very loose with their application of uh, Leviticus 11, which is the dietary restrictions. And so you could decide to be a Nazarite, and most of the time it was temporary. There are a few examples of Nazarites who were lifelong, and one of them is Samson. It's an interesting example because out of all of those that choose for the rest of your life to be a Nazarite, Samson did not have a choice. His mother was told, he will be this. Samson was not asked, would you like to be this? God came in and said, no, your son will be this. The other thing that's interesting is not only did Samson have to abstain from all the dietary and all of the restrictions, his mom had to restrain while she was expecting Samson. So she was a Nazarite herself because she had made a vow and she had to uphold these restrictions. The other example in the Old Testament is Samuel, which is really interesting because when you look at the story of Samuel and you look at the two moms, what's similar between the two moms? Both were barren. What else? Both were visited by a messenger of heaven, given the good news. 
And both of them had sons. And both of them had sons who were called to help take Israel from their point of spiritual despair into spiritual freedom, salvation, and enlightenment. And so in both cases, it's very, very similar. There is a very similar story in the New Testament of another mom whose son was a Nazarite. Anyone want to guess? John the Baptist, his mother Elizabeth, barren, visited by an angel, and her son, do a little research, he was a Nazarite. So this carries over all the way into the New Testament. We're going to take a look at Jesus a little bit later on, because Jesus himself was a Nazarite, but in a very unique way. In fact, he kind of shuffles the deck and does things backwards. Because for a Nazarite, you would start out your process by saying, I commit to all of these restrictions. So that's the first thing you would do. Let's say uh, you want to be a Nazarite, okay? I won't have you raise the yes cards. But if you were to say, yes, I want to be a Nazarite, the first thing you would have to do is to agree to all the restrictions. And you'd write down, this is what I'm going to do. I will abstain from all these things. The second thing that you would do is baptism. It was called mikveh back then. And you would go down into the baptismal font, and you would be baptized, and that would, that would symbolize that you've cleansed yourself from all the past, and you're starting right now, brand new, with this new life resolution, or this next month's res- resolution, or a year, or however long you, you started. Jesus does it backwards. He gets baptized, and then later on, we'll talk about the restrictions that he talks about. At the end of your Nazarite vow, how you would end everything, how you'd close everything down, is that you would uh, do this mikveh bath, make three offerings. You'd make a lamb as a burnt offering, known as ola, a ewe as a sin offering, which is a hatat, and a ram as a peace offering, shalamim. In addition to that, you would have a basket of unleavened bread, some grain offerings and drink offerings, which accompanied your peace offering, the ram. They would also shave their head in the outer courtyard of Jerusalem temple and then place the hair on the same fire as the peace offering. (laughs) You're laughing like, I'm glad we don't do that today. Uh, I I agree, ma'am. So, taking this vow, you would go through all this, and at the end, you would do your sacrifices. It's interesting when you look at Jesus Christ... Um, he gets baptized at the beginning, not at the end. And he comes all the way down to the last meal. We call it the Last Supper, right? Does anybody know what, what festival that was? Okay, so it was the Passover feast. But what was the festival? Festival of the, it rhymes with bun leavened bread. Once again, you guys are so quick. Unleavened bread. It's the feast of the unleavened bread, the festival of the unleavened bread. Um, What's the offering you have to bring at the end as a Nazarite? Unleavened bread. What are the sacrifices that you have to bring, and what's the meaning of those sacrifices? Number one, you need a lamb. What did the burnt offering symbolize? Forgiveness of sin. Jesus was the lamb who his offering brought the forgiveness of sin. Why did he bring it? So it'd be nothing between you and God, and ultimately as peace, a peace offering. At the Last Supper, Jesus makes a statement. It's a really unique statement. You find it in one of the places is, is uh, Mark 14, 25. I put it right here on the study guide. At, at the Last Supper, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, Jesus says, quote, Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Have you ever wondered why he did that? I have. And it wasn't until this last week that I made the connection, reading all the commentaries, who made the connection for me, 
of seeing. I always thought, why, why is Jesus saying, okay, guys, I'm going to take a grape juice fast? He already said, this represents my blood that I'm going to shed for you. But why would he not drink it again until we're all around the table with him in heaven and we all watch him for the first time take his first sip of grape juice, this smile on his face, so excited because he hasn't been able to taste grape juice since the time of the Last Supper until the time of the Second Coming. And I've always wondered why, okay, well, that's special, that's great, okay, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go without cheese pizza. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to go without between now and then. Why specifically did he pick that? And it's not unless you look at the story of Samson and all the Nazarites that you understand Jesus is saying so, something so much greater at the Last Supper than I'm going to go without. Jesus is saying, I choose to be a Nazarite, but opposite. I'm turning everything on its head. I'm done everything backwards from the chronological events you're supposed to do as a Nazarite. And remember, God does not do anything by accident. Everything he does, when you study it and you look at it, you realize he is so intentional. There is a hidden message in every action that Jesus does. He turned it on his head because he wanted to tell you it's backwards. I'm a Nazarite, but it's backwards. Because when you, as a human, become a Nazarite, you are dedicating, you're taking a vow to serve God and Him only. And everything you do is to make sure that you as a human have a relationship with God. And God, at the Last Supper, says, I've done everything backwards, and I'm telling you this because those of you who are Jews, you'll get it right away. And many of them got it right away because they knew it was still alive. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. They knew exactly what this meant. Jesus says, I do it backwards, and the reason why I'm going to go without grapes until I see you again, is I'm taking a Nazarite vow, and my vow is backwards. Instead of me vowing to make sure that I support myself, I am taking a vow to make sure that I'm doing everything possible to focus on mankind and my relationship with mankind. And until I do my part in getting all of you back into relationship with me and physically with me in heaven, I take an open-ended Nazarite vow. Until you're with me, I will be a Nazarite for you. Is that the most beautiful thing? The most loving thing a God can do is say, I take a vow to you. Many of you have made a vow to me, but I vow to you. I will not ever touch grapes until you and I are together because you, many of you Nazarites, have not touched grapes until you see me and have fulfilled your vow. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. Raul. Um, this um, is very profound, what you said. There's a lot more to it than, yes. than, than we should explore maybe another time. But Jesus also um, fulfilled the three offerings. Yes. And uh, that is very, very important as well in the story of uh, salvation and redemption. He was himself the burnt offering. Yes. And right there on the cross, he, he, he said, I, Father, forgive their sins because mm -hmm. they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. So it's the sin offering as well. And he spent his life um, offering peace, uh, a peace that the world cannot give us. So at the cross, he was the three things, the lamb offering, the sin offering, and the peace offering. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that it's three. Whenever God represents perfect agreement amongst the Godhead, it has to be three, which means it's not simply Jesus saying this. It's the entire Godhead saying we are in full, perfect, united agreement that we're all taking a vow to humanity. Is that beautiful or what? I just absolutely love it. Now, I want to ask you a question. Look on the back side of the uh, study guide. We're going to walk through a couple elements. Once again, we just kind of skip by. The first one, who does the angel of the Lord come to initially? The woman. Hmm. We got a problem here. I'm not sure if we can trust the Bible. And our reason is God should know better. 
because man's religious law at this time stated that a woman was not allowed to talk to a man. And if a woman was caught even having a simple conversation with a man in public, it's grounds for divorce. Mosaic law. Guys, you, you did not allow your wife to speak to another man. Scandalous. And so here we have a story where once again it shows God doesn't know any better. He does something that's very offensive. Doesn't he know? This is not simply tradition. This is Mosaic law. No man who understands Mosaic law would put a woman in that position. So here, God's breaking the law by speaking to a woman. So what happens? The woman comes back and tells the husband, praise God, he's a godly man. Because his, the first words out of his mouth are not, woman, you know better. You're not supposed to talk to men. What's his response? It's okay. It's an open book test. You can look at the Bible. <laughs> What's his response? Someone said it over here. Why didn't he talk to me? Doesn't he know who the head of the household is? So what does he do? He goes to the source. If this was truly a message from God, okay, God, um, I understand that there's a chance that you spoke to my wife. If that's true, will you come speak to me? Right? That's what happens. His prayer is, Lord, come to me. I'm the man of the house, and we're the ones that make the rules. We're the important ones. Okay, let, uh, let me show you what I mean by this. Uh, okay, so the, the, Samson's father's name is Manoah. Samson's mother's name is Obviously, who's important in the story? If the woman's not even important enough to give her a name, she's a certain woman, then obviously God should know better. This is biblical, guys. A man's name is there. The woman's name is not. So Manoah says, God, I I'm, I'm, just want to clear things up in case my wife is mistaken. Women are known to be mistaken. In the Old Testament. <laughs> so, uh, here comes all these comment cards. Great. Okay. I did not see a single love it card. I, I will move on. So, Manoah says, God, come to me. And so God, being generous and kind and understanding the culture of the day and making sure that he works within the culture to not offend, he comes back and he comes to the woman. Does God not have GPS? Does he not know where the man is? Could he not find him? Why, why did he come back to the woman when obviously the woman didn't even ask him to come back? The man asked him, come back and explain because I'm the father. I need to know what to do. And I've got secondhand information that I'm not even sure is true. So he prays, God, come tell me. I need to know how to raise this boy. And God, I... I just have to guess here, but I think my guess is pretty right, that God knows everything, okay? And God knows not only the number of hairs on your head, but he knows where your head is. And if he chooses not to come where you are, it's a choice. The man said, come to me. God says, I'm going back to the woman. <laughs> if you want to get it right, go to the mom. Now I see some love it cards. Okay. <laughs> God sends his messenger, goes to the mom, and says the exact same thing. So what's the woman do? She's a very sweet, very culturally sensitive woman, because she could have just come back and said, look, um, I got the mail, okay? I got the mail. And he said the same thing. Instead, she says, come see him. So Manoah goes out into the field. Does God know where Manoah was? Why didn't God send the messenger with the wife to go to Manoah? Does God do anything by accident? He's doing this on purpose. 
Who's the most important person in this section of the story? A certain woman. Most important person, because God himself does not say, now messenger, if, you know, the husband, the father-to-be is, is going to need clarification, go see her and then go with her to the husband. No, he makes the man come out to him. Why? Because God doesn't do anything by accident. God looks at this and says, there's nothing like the influence of a mom. And I'm not downplaying the influence of a father because I know. I know the influence of a father. And I know the influence of not having a father. And so that really helps me with my kids understand I have a great responsibility to help my kids have a father, to understand uh, the role of a father. But still, my boys would be a mess without the mother. (laughs) Absolute mess. God is making a point here that I think we've read over and read over and read over, that it doesn't matter what cultural norms we set, even if we say these are law, these are Mosaic law, God is not a respecter of man's culture when it steps in his way. And he will just say, okay, whatever, but I'm, I'm going to do what I'm going to do with who I'm going to do it with, and it doesn't matter because it's my plan, it's not yours. And it doesn't matter whether your law, your culture says this is inappropriate. God has been known again and again. And the more you come to the Bible lab, you're going you're to see time and time again where God is absolutely culturally inappropriate. And it's not by accident because God knows everything. And he knows our culture. But he also understands to get the job done, you have to have the right person. And if, and if we've set up bureaucracy in between... God and the person, he is not a respecter of our bureaucracy. He's just going to go to the person with whom he wants to work through. And it's our job to get out of the way. Because God's going to work the way God works. Back here. Uh, I have the American Standard, New American Standard Version. Excellent. Which, it's my understanding that it's more a word for word rather than a thought, uh, word for thought. Yeah, it's more of a literal translation instead of uh, dynamic equivalence. Yes, and it says, um, Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again, that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. Yeah, yeah. He didn't say come to me, according to this Exactly, exactly. I love it. Uh, that, uh, part of what I do in, in preparation is I go through all of the, the most, um, probably the most authoritative interpretations, and several of them use, it's first-person plural, uh, which is accurate. That is what it is in Hebrew. It's first-person plural. So I, literally, Thursday, I'm going back over my notes, getting everything ready uh, uh, for pr- presentation. We had already done the study guide. And when I came to the word us, I'm so glad you said that. I, I chuckled. I laughed. Because, once again, let's step back. Manoah says, come to us. Who does he come to? It's the woman that has to make it an us. Right? It's not God that makes it an us. God comes to the her, and she has to make it an us by bringing her husband to where the messenger of the Lord is. It is still the wife making it an us. It's not God. So it's really, really interesting. But thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Back here. In each of the cases um, of all three, wasn't it also going back to a former Bible lab that each of these women was beyond childbearing? So the men could not say, oh, look at me. Look what I did. You know, I got my barrenless wife pregnant at an age where it could be anything from me, but it's a miracle from God. Yeah. And I felt that Manoah had to go out to meet with the angel and the woman because he needed, needed a shift in consciousness of the culture of the time. Yeah. He needed to go to her for woman's importance with God, mm-hmm. signifying that. Yeah. You know, we don't have, uh, thank you, Thad, that is beautiful. We don't have any evidence for how old the certain woman was, Manoah's wife, because um, scripture doesn't tell us. Um, 
and also looking at Hannah, we, Samuel's mother, we also don't have direct evidence of exactly how, how old each of these women were. Um, we, we're left only with an understanding that they've been barren so long that it's been proven they're barren, <laughs> that they've gotten to a place of either hopelessness or desperation. And because of that, uh, they're obviously not super young uh, because it's, it's been proven through enough years um, that, that they are barren. Mike? Do we need to rename the New Testament from Nazarene to Nazarite? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because actually in the, um, in the first century AD, uh, right after the cross, um, the, the term Nazarene actually did not mean someone from Nazareth. In fact, there are followers of Jesus the Nazarene. And um, you'll see a huge shift in the language. In the Greek understanding of Nazarene, um, they weren't thinking of the town Nazareth, they were thinking of Nazarite. And so when you do a word study on that, you'll also see that um, Paul himself was accused of being a follower of Jesus the Nazarene. Um, and it really was not trying to say he was from the Burbs of Jerusalem. It was trying to say this was a guy who was a Nazarite. And so uh, Paul was even accused of being a Nazarene himself because of it. And so uh, many people during the early uh, Christian era uh, didn't think, when, when we read Scripture, uh, you know, Jesus uh, the Nazarene, or just read the word the Nazarene, they actually heard it as Nazarite, the way we've talked about it. So now when you go back and read the Gospels, you're going to have to re <laughs> rewrite that in your brain. What they're saying is Jesus was this one set apart and set aside, uh, had taken this vow, and, uh, and because of it, uh, it, it's totally different from how we read it today, thinking of a geographical location, a, a certain city. Thank you, Mike. We are out of time, but I, I want us to think about something. What can we take from the story that shows us that the character of God that really demonstrates something that perhaps we haven't seen before? I think ultimately two things that we spent quite a bit of time on share with us one very important truth. Number one, God's going to do what God's going to do. But within that, the most important thing is God wants to do something. And whether we feel like our life is barren, there's no more hope, there's no more chance, everyone else is having their experience, everyone else is having the, the, the fruit of their labors and children and all this, everyone else is having it, God stops and says, no, 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 no. There's always hope when you are connected to me. But I need us to be connected in a resolute way. I need you to make a resolution that you and everything about you, your entire life. You're not called to be perfect. You're called to connect with God. And if you will do everything you can to dedicate your life to connect with me and take that vow to connect with me, regardless of the mistakes you make, and we're going to see plenty in, in the chapter to come, despite the fact that Samson was not perfect, God still used him and God still strengthened him. In the same way, we can take today, God wants to come into your life and say, he says, I want to make a difference in your life. I want to bring the Spirit into your life. I want to bring freedom into your life. And I can do it, but it is a two-way street that requires you to make a resolution to do so. And secondly, Christ says, I'm not asking you to do something I'm not willing to do myself. Because more than 2,000 years ago, I sat around a table and I made a resolution to you, and I became a Nazarite for you, and I dedicated my life to you, and I said, I will abstain from something I created. It's not even bad. I'm not abstaining from something bad. I'm, I'm abstaining from something that's my favorite, something I made. I'm like, oh, and that is good. And God says, I will abstain from something that I crave from something I enjoy, from something I created, because you're so important to me that I want to take a vow to you. And until you are standing in front of me face to face, I will not break my vow. Can you imagine that day in heaven? We're all sitting around looking down the table. And all of us are going to be waiting for that moment. From this day on, we're going to be waiting for that 
beautiful moment, the miles-long table, but we can see down to the head of the table where sits Jesus. Beautiful goblet in his hand, swirling around. The best Welches the universe can create. <laughs> beautiful. Purple-red. Sweet. And he takes a moment and he pauses because he's waited a long time for this moment. For that sweet moment of you sitting around the table with him. The book of Revelation ends, his greatest desire is to dwell with you. And he sup with you. And he sits there and, and we all hold our breath that moment Christ takes that goblet and reaches it up to his mouth and closes his eyes and takes a great big gulp of the most precious sweet grape juice the universe has ever known. And he lets out our great big, ah. And in that moment, we will all breathe a sigh of relief because our Savior took a vow for us and became a Nazarite for us. Man, the more you read the Bible, just the more good news you find. The character of God just is absolute love. And it's so great to share this with you. I sure hope you'll come back for the next episode because we're going to take the next step into the life of Samson and we're going to see a flawed character. And despite the fact that he's a flawed character, we see God working and God saying, I'm investing in you. And despite the fact that Samson was an absolute mess, God says, I still can work within the mess. I don't give up on you. I will always be right here with you, available to you, work in you, through you, and for you until we truly come into face-to-face contact together in that beautiful day to come. I wish you the best week ever, and God bless you as you continue to search out His character. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab Podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at thebiblelab.com. Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.